Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Uh, we once again have the great PK, Doug White, Palmetto Kid, as Jacob calls him on here. Doug, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How you guys? Oh, I'm doing great. Jacob, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Not as good as Andrew right now because he's uh, about 25 minutes into a pre- his first ever pre-workout uh, and uh, I gotta say, I feel good. I think he's vibrating in his seat right now. I think he's like about <laughs> to like just take off on us. Yeah, dude, I'm a little, I'm a little bit jittery. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, my hands are tingling. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, no, uh, super excited though for this episode. Um, so Doug, it's been a little while since we've had you on the podcast. Uh, I think it's been pretty much since this time last summer uh, was when we actually uh, ha- yeah. had you I think on. So. But of course, any of our uh, listeners who are on the Beast uh, forum, they're going to know who we're talking about here. But uh, real quick, uh, I guess to kind of kick this off, this is going to be an interesting conversation because we're going to dive into the discussion of mature buck behavior and kind of what you've seen and learned, especially after hunting you know, a bunch of different areas of the country, but specifically also the application for in Florida as well, which is, again, very different from uh, a lot of other states. But to kind of kick us off, Doug, how would you like describe, if we're talking about you know buck behavior, what is your way to describe just the overall behavior mindset or the application of how these bucks, these mature bucks, travel and use the land compared to your other deer, because I think that'll really kind of segue us into the conversation of, you know, we're looking at, we're talking about something completely different than if you were just hunting deer in general. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's like, uh, you know, I've heard that growing up over and over and over. When Once you start diving into trying to hunt for mature bucks, that's one of the first things that people tell you is hunting for a mature buck. It's like hunting for a different species. Um, and then that's kind of the end of the conversation is, there's not really an explanation of how are they different or why are they different, um, you know. And the way that I've I've come to kind of figure it not really figure it out, but um, come to look at it is they have a different purpose, you know. Especially during the rut, that's mostly what I'm talking about, you know, because during early season, absolutely they're on a, a bed to food pattern just like the rest of the deer. Um, sometimes they bed a little bit different or whatever, but it's basically the same thing. But mostly for the rut is what I'm talking about. And that's when most of the, your guys are hunting the most. Um, and that's when these deer, they turn into a different animal. And the simple reason is because they're no longer acting like a deer. They're acting more like a predator and you know, their prey is a hot doe. So they're trying to find hot does. And you know, the kind of the evolution of that, um, if you think about what a buck goes through from its very first rut as a nub horn, and then a raghorn, as you know, it's a one and a half year old. Then two, they're trying to figure out the game as they grow up. You know, each year to year. By the time they're four years old, five, six, seven, eight year old deer, they've got it down to a science. They've got it figured out. They know every doe group that's in their home range. They know the trails that they use. They know the bedding areas that they use for which time of year. Um, and then basically for the rut, they're just keeping tabs on them. Um, I think I think Michael Perry said it 
years ago or before on your podcast, connecting the dots. He's connecting the dots of those different doe groups. Um, so that may, that means that he's traveling the area using the landscape in a different fashion than all the rest of the deer. That's why he's not using those heavy worn down deer trails because he's not just going from one bedding area to one feeding area. He's going from his core area and he's making a circuit and he's cutting multiple uh, bedding areas, feeding areas, and those major trails. He's wanting to scent check all of them. Um, so he's on a totally different pattern than all the rest of the deer. And so would you say that's kind of where a lot of people go wrong when it comes to hunting a mature buck? They're kind of still hunting the same way that they would be if they were trying to kill a doe or a, or a younger buck or just any deer? Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times, a lot of guys, they look for a lot of deer sign and then they set up accordingly, like, okay, the deer's going to be coming from the woods to the field or whatever, which absolutely does happen. Every year, guys are going to kill big bucks that are trailing does, you know, with a doe group or coming out to that field or, or however. But a lot of times, the other problem with that, though, is the very mature deer, the older they get, the less of those mistakes that they make. Because if they're making those mistakes on public land, they're usually dead by two, three, four, five years old. And a lot of the big bucks that get killed are that three, four, and five years old because those are the ones that are really big, but they're still making some of those mistakes. And I guess, you know, when we have this conversation, because this is something I think is going to be important for really everybody, but especially someone that's just now kind of getting into the mindset like, hey, you know, I don't want to just go kill any deer. I want to try to go focus on, you know, that, that bigger, older, more mature buck, which doesn't have to mean anything with antler size. It's just, you know, trying to target that older age class deer. I mean, you're coming in from South Florida. I mean, you could talk to us all day long about, you know, you know, when it comes to deer's age, especially where you're at, it's not all about the antler. It's really about, you know, what you're trying to target and what you can actually get on. Because I think when people start thinking about this conversation, I think everybody can go back to and think of, you know, running trail cameras on, you know, what is public land, private land, whatever. And for some reason, whenever your time of the rut is, like for you guys, you know, down July, I mean, right now through like July, like they're freaking, you know, rutting's crazy. But think about trail cam photos where you just randomly, you're checking cameras one day and you just randomly had this huge buck on camera. And you're like, where has that guy been? And it's during the rut. And you're thinking, why is he showing up now? And you might only get a couple images of him and then he's gone. And you're like, th- you think he's gone forever, which in reality, he may be using that property completely different from every other deer. And just by happenstance, based off that circuit that he's running, that was the one or two times during the year when he actually came through that direct s- small area where your camera is located at. Can you maybe touch on that and kind of like, exp- maybe we can dive into that conversation about the land use and habitat use of these bucks during that specific time of year, specifically talking the rut and how it can differ quite a bit more than I think a lot of people realize. And that's the reason why you may not be getting that buck on camera other than a very short window of time during that part of the season. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I get some of those pictures. A lot of times it's with a doe. I got one last year. He was actually breeding a doe right in front of my camera. It's the only picture I got of this deer. I don't know where he came from. Never got him again, um, but obviously he was there because he was on the trail of that doe, which I'm sure was one of the does that was in front of my cameras regularly using that trail. But he came in, <laughs> he did his business, he was gone. So that's exactly what I'm talking. It was a, it was a really old looking deer, um, and so think about the timing that that deer had. That that's the only time he showed up. 
was at the perfect time. And that, that's how down to a science he's got it. And that area actually has um, pretty good numbers. So in an area like that, you know, that's another thing to think about is when you got high numbers and then you have a lot of pressure taking down that amount of bucks. So you really got a lot of does per buck. Um, those bucks may not be doing that typical, like hanging out with a doe for three days when she comes in. He, he might be timing it enough that he's got so many does that he's going to pop in when she's ready and he's going to be gone and on to the next one. Um, but I'm sorry, your question was more about the land use and how they run that circuit, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot. Uh, one thing that you always think about when you look at maps or when you're walking through the woods is you're looking for funnels, which are a lot of times the path of least resistance. Um, and the truth is there's a reason why funnels can be great and some funnels are nothing at all. There's a lot of, I call them dead funnels out there, whether they're saddles, whether they're, um, you know, swamp, you know, uh, high ground running through swamps or all these different features that bucks travel along benches. There's a lot of those features where you're never going to shoot a, a big buck consistently, but these bucks are traveling from point A to point B. They're not necessarily following, um, terrain. They're not necessarily following habitat edges. They're going from one spot to the next. Uh, and a lot of times I've found it's actually not always not usually the path of least resistance it's actually in the more difficult terrain um that they're willing to cross it whether it's deep dish, ditches um like draws uh they're not going to travel uphill and go up around the edge of that draw like a lot of the other deer will to use that trail they're just going to cut right down the, the up and down the steep banks um and that that's kind of some of the things that i've noticed one thing about doing this podcast that's really fun is hearing patterns between different people who are talking and We've talked to a bunch of people lately who've kind of said very similar stuff, whether it's uh, Adam Tucker from North Georgia, who's talking about hunting aggressive terrain. I think that's what we named that episode. It's specifically seeking out the the tough, nasty stuff that you wouldn't expect, the stuff that you expect deer to be funneling around, the, the stuff you think that they'd be avoiding. Um, and so I want to I expand a little bit more on some of the stuff that you were talking about and maybe some of your opening that the opening uh, statement that we did about running circuits and, and these bucks behave more as like a, a predatory animal. Well, when you say that these older mature bucks behave more like a predator who's hunting does, what, what does that actually mean? What are they doing differently besides, yeah, they're going to the different doe groups and everything, but what other behavior might they have that just other deer aren't doing? Because I, I feel like we try to key in on certain features where you know a buck quote-unquote hunting a doe group whether they're coming in to go check this certain bedding area that a lot of does hang out in or or whatnot i feel like that's what a lot of people hunt so what are we missing there where they're acting like a predator in a different way than any other deer is yeah um, i wouldn't necessarily say you're missing anything you, you know there's 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 you're still doing a lot of things right and you're still going to kill nice bucks um one of the things that i've seen with like the older the deer get it's almost like the lazier they get, but they also are just being more efficient. They're doing it uh, in a better way um, by expending less energy. Uh, what I mean by that is they're going to keep, well, I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot is thermal hubs and thermal activity. And you got to think about when those bucks are using spots like that, how efficient it is for them to scent check so much ground. Um, so when they have, you know, a five, six, eight year old buck, whatever, he knows all those spots in his home range 
that are going to give him the most advantage. And a lot of times he's cutting from one of those spots to the next, to the next, to the next. And he's not necessarily concerned with using the easiest travel path. He's actually making usually a beeline. Um, and what you said earlier about um, hunting the aggressive terrain and the bucks cutting through that nasty stuff, I've seen the same thing. I saw it one year. It was funny. Uh, I put up a trail camera that was watching the edge of a flag pond, which is like a small swamp. And I was expecting to get movement along the edge, you know, on that um, vegetation edge that you would think that they would funnel around the pond. And the biggest buck I got on there was cutting perpendicular coming out off the high ground. And he walked, I had it in video mode. He walked out and cut straight across the middle of that pond. Obviously, because whatever, wherever he was, the next spot that he wanted to go to was directly across that pond was the shortest distance. He didn't care about wading through waist deep water. He cared about going from A to B, the shortest distance, because when these bucks are running these circuits, you know, they're running them every day. They're, sometimes they're running them multiple times a day during the rut. Every time they can shave off 100 yards, 200 yards, three or 500 yards off of an area. And you multiply that by the day he's shaving off miles and by the week and by the month he's shaving off, you know, dozens of miles that he has to travel. And that's what I'm talking about, uh, about them being efficient. So when it comes to, let's say he's making a beeline point A to point B to point C and so on, and he's kind of making his rounds, what would some, what are some examples of what those points would be? Are we talking about just a bedding area that's holding a lot of deer, thermal hubs specifically, maybe scrapes? Like what are some examples of, areas of interest that he might you could look at a map and say he's probably going to hit this and then he probably wants to hit that and then you can kind of start connecting those dots um looking at a map is going to be really tough unless you really know the area or you really have a a lot of experience with that type of terrain and that that's probably going to be tough for a lot of people even for me i mean you know this stuff a lot of this stuff that i found out it's been on properties that i've hunted year after year after year after year and then, yes, I am able to take that um, experience and see very a lot of similarities everywhere I go. Um, but the best way I could describe it is if you can look at the map and if you're able to um, identify places that are going to concentrate doe groups, whether that is a, you know, a certain food source um, or a certain funnel that you know is between here's doe bedding, here's where they're feeding, maybe it's agriculture, whatever, here's a nice funnel. How can a buck scent check that most um, efficiently? Where, where, you know, is there a draw below that funnel where he can hit it um, and scent check that whole area, especially if it's like a, you know, a bit of a hub or whatever, then where's the next one? He's going to go from one to the next. Um, so that, those are, and yeah, definitely doe bedding, feeding areas, funnels, anything that concentrates uh, ground scent of the does or where that ground scent is going to, drift to or be carried to by winds and thermals um another one that i've seen bucks using um is areas that will swirl the wind i talked about this before that swirl the wind from multiple directions like where tree lines meet from from opposing directions what happens is that daytime wind will come down those tree lines and then they'll meet in the corner there and they'll swirl a bit that's why a lot of times you'll see bucks come up to the corners of fields and stuff like that and they'll stand there and they'll wait for that wind to swirl and um, I watched one do it just this past season. It was, uh, he come up out of the swamp, right where the swamp kind of did like a point. And a bunch of does had come through there. And he heard, I know he was bedded in that swamp and he heard them in the water. He came up and he stood there and he looked around 
and I can see the wind blowing the trees and I know it swirls down in there because I know what the wind does down in there. And he stood there and he sniffed and he sniffed and, uh, he didn't sniff, he didn't smell anything. He liked, he turned around, he went to walk back in and thankfully he went through a little opening. I was able to take him, but that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I, I've seen him do over and over again in, in all different kinds of terrain. And that kind of brings up again, the application of truly understanding wind and thermals in whatever kind of habitat type or terrain feature that you're train you're going to be hunting in. Uh, because if you start thinking about that, that is something, cause you mentioned about, you know, that, that, that pulling center, like where he can that butt go where you get the highest concentration, especially does and where he can, he go in that relative area, but be able to work through very quickly and then scent check whatever's going on in that area from either down below it or up above it. And then, you know, if there's nothing he smells that's of interest, he can keep on making that beeline to that next location. And, you know, those draws are something huge. You know, we, I just did that episode um, a, a little bit while back with uh, Bo Martonic on his podcast about thermals. And that's like something that you hear a lot of guys, not a lot of guys talk about, but people that really pay attention to thermals, especially in hill country, but, you know, even where you're at, you see, again, the thermals playing, you know, a part of, uh, you know, something you got to take in consideration. Of these places that the scent pulls down to, uh, especially in a slightly lower elevation, where a buck can easily cut through that area and know exactly what's going on way up above him in different drainages and fine-tune, you know, is it worth his effort to go up in there to go look at something instead of, you know, have to go up there, find something nothing he likes and has to drop back down to another location. And I guess you start thinking about that, like, again, you know, how can a buck be able to move through an area with the least amount of effort but smell the most around what's happening around him. Like what you were talking about, like getting that buck coming out corner of the field. It's pretty almost a 90 degree angle. The wind swirls right down in the corner, corner based how the wind, you know, goes down the tree line and he can kind of figure out what's in the area from that one location. If there's nothing he really likes. He can turn and, and keep on moving on that beeline. Yeah. Um, so, and that, that's also similar, like what I see in um, hill country a lot is like saddles um saddles are great because they they funnel deer movement and they also funnel that wind when the wind's coming across the hill it'll it'll pull through that saddle and then it'll kind of swirl on each side or on the on the you know the upwind side or the downwind side and people a lot of people say like big bucks don't really use saddles and i don't think they go through a ton of saddles as many as much as like other deer but they relate to those saddles um, to monitor the deer movement and probably, and also if there's people hunting it, obviously they're monitoring that as well. But, um, but yeah, that, that's why I, I hear a lot of people talk about that. Uh, like you talk about like a bench below a saddle with a draw that comes up to the bench. It's just a perfect scenario for the buck. Um, another thing that kind of drove this home for me is, is was looking at that GPS data Um I forget which study it was. I think it was a Pennsylvania. And I think your guys are the, the podcast you guys did too. I think it was similar results where a lot of these bucks were setting up near draws or some sort of thermal, um, thermal mover, something that pulls thermals or swirls the wind or both, because that gives the buck such an advantage during the daytime. If that wind is swirling, nothing can get close to him without him knowing and then at night if those thermals can pull from multiple directions it just works out perfect for him yeah 
and again, that, that's the kind of interesting factor when you think about this, because also something else you, you mentioned earlier is about the idea of these bucks kind of saving as much energy as possible, or maybe even being just more time efficient by cutting corners and, you know, yards equals miles. Um, and if you kind of think of it that way, and that's one reason that, and you kind of brought this up a little bit before we started recording, why you believe again you find these faint trails that these buck these big mature or these mature bucks are using that are kind of off the beaten path from a course where these does are traveling and it's a slightly different path of travel. Like they may come close to each other, but a lot of times they're completely separate. And if you think about it, the more and more that buck's gonna be kind of taking his own path, again, it's such subtle sign that again, most people are gonna miss that. And it kinda you kinda think about I'm almost wondering on the application of running trail cameras in those faint trails and kind of backtracking potentially, is there anything specific these bucks are using, especially in more like hill country, for um, an advantage? Again, whether that faint trail is above that doe trail, below the doe trail, in relation to, you know, these different hubs, in relation to these different feeding areas, and if there's any specific pattern there that you can, once you have an idea of, you know, where these deer are congregating at, where these faint trails should be at when it comes to looking at a map. Yeah. Yeah, no, and uh, that was really interesting listening to those episodes about, um, I forget who it was, man, but who was running all those cameras in the in the mountains. Um, and I believe he was talking about the, the, the buck hubs being in those, a lot in those thermal hub type areas. And he was talking a lot about those faint trails and following those faint trails to find those hubs. And likely those faint trails are, are, I would imagine, I don't know, I don't know if he said it or not, but they're going from one hub to the next, um, you know, and, that, and that's kind of what I'm talking about is they're running a circuit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, again, I'm just now more and more curious on the aspect of like how to find that circuit, especially if you could find it before that buck is running it a ton. Like, how often that circuit's being ran during the pre-rut time frame where you can maybe hopefully get on that pattern and then capitalize and come to rut when he's running it more and more frequently, um, especially in an area that has maybe higher deer densities. And that's something else maybe that's interesting to discuss on is, like, the idea of what that circuit could look like in areas with high deer densities versus areas with low deer densities, where in high deer densities, he probably doesn't have to travel very far. That home range is really sucked tight, and that's something that we've seen in the, in the GPS data compared to areas with low deer densities and those books have to cover so many more miles in order to check enough doe groups, you know, throughout his day, um, to really be worthwhile. Um, so that, that's something else, again, that maybe is like repetition, like those areas that with higher deer densities, I'm wondering if you just catch that buck so much more frequent in that circuit versus again, those low deer density locations. Um, that would be tough for me to say because I haven't ran cameras in that many different areas. I wonder how that's applicable on that circuit. And if they, and deer in high density areas, bucks in high deer, deer density areas run that circuit maybe in a quicker time frame, around and around. So, or, you know, for this, you know, discussion, it's like a circular movement compared to areas with low deer densities where maybe he's got to truly go on more of like an expedition where he may be gone for a couple days as he's making that, you know, that loop around, uh, trying to find any and every doe group he can. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think you also said something about how to figure out that circuit before the rut. Mm, yeah. Um, 
I would, the way that I've tried to do it before and has, has had some success was, uh, from historical sign, you know, finding the old rubs, uh, because if you find a buck, if you're, if you're truly hunting for mature bucks, if they're five, six, seven years old, by now they've already established that circuit. So once you find, and a lot of times, I mean, when you're hunting public land, there's not a whole bunch of five, six, seven year old bucks around. So when you start finding that really big sign, if you find it post season or you find it, you know, whenever, and, and you're finding the historical sign, if that buck's still alive, he's probably going to pop back up. Um, and a lot of times they'll, they'll make that sign, you know, where they hit, um, a, a ecotone or a vegetation edge or whatever, um, or crossing, you know, another deer trail. So you can kind of, if you can work through an area and you find those big rubs on this edge, there's no trail, but then you find them over on this edge and then you can kind of start to connect the dots on how he's running that circuit. He's going to, if it's an old deer, he's, if, if things haven't changed dramatically, he's going to run that circuit again. Is there a general rule of thumb that you have when you're out scouting and maybe you start locating some of that uh, heavier deer sign where you can tell that there's just a lot of deer coming through a certain funnel or hitting a certain food source? Are you then like pulling out your map and like going downhill from that basically and, and like trying to find specific thermal pools or the reason I ask this is because when you're talking about this, my mind immediately goes to like hill country and I'm thinking, okay, here's a saddle, here's a scrape, here's this or that. Go downhill from it and look at the thermal pull downhill potentially. Uh, what about going above stuff? Are you finding them cutting above it? Or in flatland, how does that play out too? Um, especially flatland because, man, flatland is something that I just don't have a lot of experience with. And I'm at a loss when we're talking about uh, them scent checking and, and doing this and that. I'm like, well, where are the thermals going to pull? How is the wind going to swirl in flatland? And you kind of touched on it earlier with the field edge thing, but I'm just wondering about if these bucks are relating to these bigger groups of deer. What do you then do once you find that sign to go try to find that bigger buck skirting around the edge of them, essentially? So if I was really trying to nail it down, like I'm trying to shoot them with a bow, obviously that's going to be tougher. A lot, a lot of the stuff that I hunt in Florida flat ground, we do a lot of muzzleloader and gun hunting because that's when the season, I mean, it cools down. So the weather's much better. The rut's kicking in. Your efficiency goes way, way up. Um, so it makes it a lot easier for me because when I find those concentrations of deer sign, then I can just do the same thing the buck is. And I can just suck off, you know, um, downwind or down thermal and I can still shoot into it. So if I'm not right on the dot with where he's going to come through, um, if he comes through up upwind to me anywhere, that, that's the other thing is I try to get as far downwind as I can so that he can't get me. Um, so that way, wherever he comes out, he's going to, he's going to be upwind and usually in range. Um, Cause I'm going to find a spot that's going to pinch down far enough that he'll, he'll come within range. Um, so yeah, basically I'm looking at, and um, like funnel hubs is one of them that I've talked about because when all those different funnels are dumping into the same area and you have all those doe groups that usually you're going to have several doe groups that are filtering through an area like that. That's going to be a very attractive area for a buck to cut through. Um, he's either going to cut across it and cut those trails or he's going to, uh, skirt it and wind it. Um, so that's, that is what I'm looking for, which is kind of exactly what you asked is how, how is he going to be able to wind check that area? Um, and as far as flat grounds, I mean, the thermals, there's nothing really truly flat. You know, if there's places that hold water and don't, then you've got some sort of uh, pitch to the ground. And then the other thing is the water itself. Um, 
is going to obviously have a lot of thermal activity, especially if the sun can get to it down here. That's a big, big thing. Our, our bodies of water usually stay very warm. So they pull a lot of thermals, uh, all night, obviously morning and evening. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. No, that, that's great. Cause actually it's uh, early in this conversation. I was thinking more like anytime we talk thermals or wind, I automatically go to hill country. Yep. Uh, automatically. And then I'm like, well, shoot, dude, you don't even live in hill country, like at least the way we talk about it. So that's something I'm, I'm very interested in because we've had a lot of guys request very recently because of all the content that we've been putting out, podcast episodes about mountains and hill country, is like, well, how do you apply some of the stuff in flatlands? And that's something I think we ought to really kind of dive into more so is like look at deer movement. Uh, I've got a few questions, but maybe before we dive into them, you said one statement, and I know you talked about this before, but maybe just for new listeners to kind of, uh, you know, rehash out this term. How do you describe what a funnel hub is? Like you just mentioned that, but like how would you go about describing it to listeners that don't know what that is? Yeah, so a funnel hub is basically exactly what it sounds like where there's several funnels that sort of filter into the same common area. Um, so that could be several bodies. Well, on flat ground, it's usually several bodies of water. Um I'm trying to think of some other example could be something that's like a, like a pine thick that's super, super thick. And maybe a lot of the deer like to, to funnel around that stuff. Um, obviously some of the deer are going to go in it as well, but it's anything that you can look at. If you're walking on the ground, you know, if you're scouting and you look at it and you say, no way in heck do I want to walk in there? Well, a lot of deer that are covering ground, they're going to cover ground the same way that you want to. Um, so anywhere that, those funnels at least two or three um all kind of dump into the same area and connect the other thing is that they have to connect good habitat or differing habitat um it can't be three small funnels that don't funnel to anything you have to kind of look at the whole layout and the context Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls. But they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call. And you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP20 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And that makes more and more sense. So, you know, of course, the larger the funnels and the more quality habitat in there, the better off these funnel hubs are going to be playing a factor. 
Now, talking to deer movement in these, especially like this buck's behavior, mature buck's behavior in flatland, especially in these areas that you have a lot of, you know, not only just success with, but also experience hunting. How else, like, how would you describe how some of these bucks are cruising and using wind and thermals to their advantage in flatland? Because you just mentioned earlier, like, when you find that concentration sign, unless you're bow hunting, but if you're talking muzzle or rifle, you're trying to back off as far as you can, you know, getting down wind of that sign to kind of catch, you know, him coming into it. How do you see bucks using terrain, habitat, like vegetation, water, and wind and thermals to their advantage in that kind of habitat? Because I truly just don't know. I mean, we talked to a few guys, but, you know, I tell you, you drop me off down there to go hunt with you, dude. It's going to be feel. I'll be feeling real weird. Yeah. So actually, I want to back up because um, I, I said I, I try to get downwind. That's not always true. Sometimes you really can't. Um, and sometimes you also can't count on a daytime wind. So if you're planning on hunting all day for the rut and midday. Um, so I just want to walk that back and say sometimes I will plant myself like if it's too big of an area, too big of a flow area or a funnel or whatever it is, I'll go smack dab in the middle of that joker and take my chances when while the uh thermals are dropping i would like to set up so that i can shoot to where my thermals are dropping to so that if something comes by early in the morning i'll be able to shoot them which that usually isn't too hard with a muzzleloader gun um but then i know once 8 eight thirty rolls around that sun is up high in the sky and my my thermals are getting sucked right up even if i'm blowing i've had tons of deer uh downwind of me and you know, that milkweed is just going at an angle up to the sky. So I just wanted to throw that out there. That's something for people to think about as well is you can, you can only get away with so much, you know, if you're, if you're always looking for the very perfect scenario, you're going to be walking for a long time because it's not always perfect. Sometimes, you know, you just have to take what you can get. Uh, sometimes you have to walk on deer trails and sacrifice, you know, a small piece of your pie of what you can shoot but knowing that you're in a very high odds area where a deer can come from 360 and after, you know, a certain time in the morning, you got all day when those bucks are going to be on their feet and they're not going to be able to smell you. So I just want to throw that out there. Um, the second part of your question, I believe was about how the deer are going to use thermal activity or the swamps kind or something. Of, and this is kind of a compounding question. Cause I think you could answer each one of these, but like, how are they using, and especially in flatland, talking here in Florida, but I'm sure we can apply this to different places. How are they using the limited topography? But again, you know, it's not all flat because there's some places with water, some places that's not that's dry. So you, they have very minimal topography. How do they use that? The habitat edges or like the vegetation uh, differences um, and the water for travel. And then how does that also apply for, you know, wind and thermals? Like, do you see anything that kind of compounds together? Like, hey, if I have these certain conditions, I can kind of have an idea of how potentially that buck's going to be working his way through, again, flatland. Like I said earlier, um, what did I say earlier? Oh, bucks like spots where the wind swirls. Um, so we're going to talk, I guess we'll talk about daytime winds first. They like where the wind swirl, where the wind's pretty, comes through a consistent, or comes from several directions, but then it swirls in a small area. They really like to key in on those spots, either for bedding, if it sets up for bedding or for traveling, they'll pop out and they'll hit those spots uh, to check it. But, and we can find those spots um, speaking in Florida, but anywhere really. So in Florida, you have a lot of like cypress swamps and cypress strands 
which is, and you know, and on either side, a lot of times you'll have like a palmetto flats or pine palmetto, similar to like a pine savanna. Uh, so if you're dealing with very flat ground, what that creates is the cypress strand has a canopy and it has trees, whereas this, the palmetto flat is pretty much wide open. So that creates turbulence, you know, around those tree lines, especially uh, where you have any bowls or you have points either in, inside or outside points, like like a, a point of a cypress that actually pokes out into the palmettos or into a field. So if you have a tree line that pokes out into a field and it's nice and thick, those bucks can set up so that if that wind's coming across, when it hits that point, it's going to swirl on that leeward side just like it would in hill country where it's coming up over the top. It's creating a vortex the same exact way. Um, or even just the tree line itself, if you have a long cypress strand and you have the wind coming perpendicular, it's going to hit those trees and it's going to start to swirl in there. Um, so those bucks will set up uh, for that. Uh, and then they travel very similarly. Like I said, they like to hit those areas uh, where the wind swirls. And then once the thermals start to drop, then they're really keying in on like the areas where the thermals are drawn to, which like I call them like thermal magnets. It's uh, where that water is deeper and where the sun is hitting it because that's where all the thermals are going to get pulled to. Um, and you can have several of them throughout a swamp. So a buck can work from one to the next and it's going to be pulling thermals from different areas. I'm not sure if that makes sense because it's not a visual. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I, I really like the analogy of a point or something coming out into a field and that wind hits that point and kind of curls around the backside of it. I mean, it's almost like if you can picture in your head how that works with the top of a hill where you have the wind coming across and it, and it curls uh, on that backside, it's almost like if you just take that and lay it flat on the ground, it kind of does the exact same thing if you're looking at the profile of it. Um, exactly. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, another thing about kind of kind of going back to hill country a little bit here but <laughs> i'm not meaning to but it's just a spot i've had on my mind lately uh it's a spot jacob and i talked about not long ago on an episode uh the thermal what no oh, i'm trying to figure out which, which spot it's, it's where i was fishing on this oh, lake yeah, okay and and there's a big thermal hub there's a there's a mountain up there essentially a uh, huge thermal hub covers a, a very large area and i come around the corner of the lake uh, into that creek drainage where that thermal hub, that big giant creek comes and empties into that lake. And it was just like a fan blowing on me. And it was just thermals. It was like early morning, early morning, right at daybreak. And those thermals are just like flying down that, that valley in a situation like, like that, if a buck is going to come and, and hit those thermals, you know, you have your, your big thermal hub and you have that bowl, um, and it kind of necks back down at the bottom of it where that creek, you know, kind of comes out of that hub. Um, or would you say that the buck, you know, usually those those thermal hubs, especially one of that size, will have a lot of sign kind of scattered throughout it, um, like on the points and then down in the middle. Would you say the buck is just, he's swinging through that very lowest part of that hub and just hitting it and then going on to the next thing? He very well could be if that's going to be a good line of travel for him. Um, he could also cut right through the middle of the bowl or the, he's going to, either way, I could, I, I would bet you that he is going to hit it as low as he needs to, to get all of the thermal activity, but not, he's not going to, he's not going to lose or gain any elevation for any reason, you know, for, for no reason. 
Does that make sense? So wherever he's coming from, whatever elevation he's coming from on the hill, if he needs to swing down a little bit to make sure that he catches all of it, then that that's what he's going to do. Or during the day, he might just pop over and wait for that wind to swirl in that bowl and he can send check the whole thing. And then he, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but I've seen it a lot where a buck will kind of pop into an area and just kind of stand there like a good buck. And he doesn't get spooked. He just turns around and walks back away. He's not, no, no, and what that, that's usually what they're doing is they're popping into that area where that wind's swirling in and they're just waiting. They're just taking inventory. Um, I seen that a couple years ago. It's just a pretty good illustration uh, or a good example of what I'm talking about when I'm saying that the older deer get more efficient is I had a pile of does come through. I was hunting a small slew. It was like a, a finger that led down into a nasty swamp. And I was up probably about 200 yards from that main swamp. And I was in that slough, in that finger. And each side of me was um, kind of like a clear cut almost on, on either side. And I had a pile of does come from one clear cut boom cut through that finger perpendicular right by me right on the doe trail right i know where they've been crossing for years those does went through right in the morning about an hour later here come a small buck he came up he came up on that trail where those does he came out of the swamp hit that trail perpendicular put his nose on the ground and followed those does all the way out to that clear cut i watched him and he went circled went back down in that swamp about an hour later a two-year-old came up he came up out of the swamp. He put his nose on the trail. He turned around and he walked back down into the swamp. About an hour after that, a really nice buck came up. He got about 75 yards from that trail and stood there. And he waited until that wind swirled. And, it, and he actually smelled me. He, he busted me. But he was, I'm confident that he, he knew where that doe trail is, just like I know where that doe trail is. He came up there and he stood there and waited until that wind swirled to catch that he, he's not going to walk that extra 75 yards and he's not going to walk up to that trail when he's probably smelled me hunting near it. So that that's kind of the exact kind of example, um, that I'm talking about. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's a, that was an excellent example. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I don't hunt a lot of thermal hubs anymore. Uh, but when we used to hunt them when I was younger, um, I remember some specific bucks, especially one in particular that's in my head and the easiest way I can describe it on an audio show is like if your hand is the thermal hub and all your fingers are the little drainages coming down and your palm is like the bowl. It's like the hub. And uh, a lot of these bucks that we would end up killing are just, you know, nice bucks that we'd end up seeing and missing or scaring would think of it like he's coming down like the bottom side of your pinky down one of those drainages and he'd swing around the bottom of your palm towards the very tail end of that thing and then he'd go up the outside of your thumb and he's just kind of whoop like swinging right through the bottom of that and smelling everything and you know sometimes we'd kill him sometimes we wouldn't and uh we'd see him like real early in the mornings or midday uh we'd kill some midday like that um but that's just fascinating i I love i love stuff like that like just kind of getting into the mindset of a deer that's that's a cool story um would you say that in those kind of situations are you ever seeing those bucks consistently sticking to thicker cover or more secure cover when they're doing something like that where he's saying okay i'm gonna set up shop right here and he's like standing right smack in the middle of some briars or something like that that's going to depend on the amount of pressure a lot of this stuff down here they are absolutely it's funny because i hear a lot of guys talk about bucks betting not in the thick stuff but on the edge of the thick stuff watching the open 
And I'm just thinking every buck that does that down here is dead because they don't <laughs> bet on the edge. They bet. They don't only bed in the thick stuff, they bed in the thickest part of the thick stuff. <laughs> um, and that doesn't have to do as much with the wind. That's just plain, you know, that's just plain survival at that point. But when they have less pressure, like there's some areas that I hunt where I, I hunt way back in, there's very little pressure back there. Um, and those deer, they do stick to the thicker stuff, but they are more on the edge and they are more visual um, then, you know, then these deer that are like have PTSD <laughs> up in the front stuff that have guys walking through every weekend, you know, um, I, I would say, I would say thick cover is important, but it, it, that's going to be pressure dependent. Mm-hmm. So is there anything that might tip you off? Uh, we've kind of talked about faint trails and, and buck sign, but is there anything that just consistently, like before we started, we talked about stuff that kind of transcends area to area. Is there anything that you look for when you're in one of these situations where you find it and you're like, okay, this is, this is exactly what I'm looking for. This looks like where he's probably swinging downwind of, of this area and he's winding this. It's a, you know, is it a faint trail, certain kind of sign tracks? Is there anything like that? Or is it more of just a feeling? Um, that comes from experience, of course. That's a really good question. Um, yeah, so I would say that what I'm usually looking for, uh, I know we talked about this pretty in depth in the other podcasts is trying to get away from that pressure, but then also the habitat and the way that it lays out that it will have multiple doe groups living in the area and that it will also have some sort of terrain features that will work for the buck as far as for traveling or for um, a wind advantage, thermal advantage. Um, but And then I'm also looking for how am I able to get in there um, and do my thing? Um, because if you're talking more about hill country, um, it's tough to get away. When I talked earlier about not paying attention to the wind and just climbing and waiting for the thermals to go up, that can be a lot harder to get away with in hill country you have to pay more attention. It, it seems like the wind just swirls more. Even during the day, you get busted a lot more than you do in flat ground. All right. So y'all have said something that I've got to ask you. And, you know, I may already know the answer, but it just now hit me. If you knew where, say, there was a couple different doe groups. And let's talk, you know, flat land here, but maybe hill country too, but you know where a couple different doe groups have been spending a lot of time, kind of like that situation where you knew they were kind of crossing, you know, through that cypress strand uh, in between the two cutovers or clear cuts. Is there anything that you've learned about, like, if you know where those does are bedding, they're spending a lot of time, if you go into the area and you're like, man, this one spot in and around there always has swirling winds, is that something that could maybe key you in that, hey, if, I was a, if, if there's a buck in the area, he's probably going to go to that spot where there's more swirling winds around wherever those does are going to be at the scent check from that one location before moving on. Is that something that maybe you've kind of looked at or thought about? Yeah, that's kind of what I've been alluding to a little bit. Um, yes and no. Uh, that's why I was talking about you want the wind to be kind of consistent, but then swirling within an area so that you can get off to the edge of it. Um, because if it, if you're hunting somewhere, like you're in, say you're in, well, you asked for flat ground. <laughs> Let's say you're in, in uh, 
um, let's say you're in a flat ground situation and you've got a few different tree lines and you're dealing with a wind that's like coming over the top and you're hunting, say on like the leeward side of a tree line and that wind is coming and then it's swirling and it's swirling this way. It's swirling that way. Maybe it's hitting, maybe you're trying to hunt really close to like a point of Cypress, like I was talking about and it's going around and it's swirling off of there and then getting sucked back into like the major wind draft and you're just swirling all over the place. I mean, it's going to be really, really tough. You have to understand how, if you're going to be dealing with those, that, that's why I talk a lot about staying out of canopies uh, and staying away from that turbulent wind. So when I, uh, when I said earlier that I saw that buck um, last year come out and check, not just this last uh, story that I told, but the one before where I was able to shoot the buck, he came out, he stood there after a pile of does come through. So he was doing the same thing that this other buck was doing. It's in a different spot, but he's doing the same thing. And the way I was able to get him is that that swamp came down and it made like a pinch, um, like a point. And I was downwind. I, the, the wind was coming and it was swirling where that tree line was, but I was about 50 yards off that tree line and I was slightly uphill and I was high in the tree. So that wind is swirling. If, if I'd have climbed down out of my tree and walked 30 yards forward and that buck came out, he would have smelled me. I'm confident of it. But just because I was just far enough, I was out from where that wind is swirling. I had a consistent wind where I was, but I could see the wind coming from the other clear cut and I could watch the trees shaking and I could watch them swirl this way. And then kind of, you know, it settles that, you know what it looks like. And I could watch that buck come right into that area where this swamp kind of, it just kind of thinned out. The canopy opened a little bit and it just created an area where there's thick on one side, open, open. And it just, it created this small little bit of turbulence. And that's where he was keying in on. But I knew I had to be off and I was in a really bad tree. It's funny as I actually had a hunter come in on me <laughs> and uh, I was down on the ground at the time. This wasn't right then, but, uh, and he was just kind of like, he wanted to hunt in that area. And then he was trying to give me advice about why the tree I was in was not a good tree because I didn't have cover. And I was just kind of thinking to myself, he was pointing to another tree. He's like, oh, you should go over there by that tree line. I'm thinking to myself, if I go over by that tree line, anything that comes through that swamp is going to win me. And that's exactly what would have happened. Um, sorry, I got off on a tangent there. But it's just funny because th that's the kind of things that after you drop milkweed in areas over and over for years and getting busted, you learn those little those little things that make a big difference. Because there's a better tree, you know, 30 yards away that I could have climbed. And it was a lot straighter and it had back cover. It's a beautiful tree to put a climber in, but I was in a crooked, nasty tree that had broken off limbs, sticking out like a sore thumb, but because I knew I had to stay out of that wind swirl. And that's what, that's, you actually answered what I was thinking. I probably didn't word it correctly. What I meant was, if you know where that wind's swirling in around where there's going to be deer traffic, to back off that, specifically we're talking here more of muzzleloader hunting and rifle hunting, taking bow hunting out of the equation unless you can shoot oh. 80 yards, and we're not, we're not going to discuss that. Um <laughs> But what I'm saying is if you know where one of those locations are, like every time you're in there, you're on the ground, and you're like, man, the wind's coming from every single direction at some point to back far enough off where like you can have a visual to that location, you can shoot to it, but you're far enough off that, you know, terrain feature or habitat break, but it has a swirling edge that you're getting more of a straight line wind where you're at, but down there where that buck's going to be coming through cruising or the does are going to be coming through he's smelling everything that he thinks for 360 degrees, but you're just far enough off that like, he's not catching your wind because you're not in that, that, uh, area of that turbulent wind. Absolutely. And if you can't, if you can't get 
if you can't be close enough for a shot without getting out of that turbulence, then you have to, if you, ha- if you have a good idea of his line of travel, you just have to backtrack it and you have to get away from that spot that swirls and you have to catch him coming to or from it, just like you would in a bowl in hill country. If you sit right in the middle of the bowl, say, Hey, I know bucks like bowls. I'm going to sit right here in the middle of the bowl. He's going to come to that edge of the bowl. And he's going to pick you off. If you back up a hundred yards, you know, side hill. And if you, if he's got rubs that are coming in and out of that bowl and you know where his trail is, you set up either above or below, depending on what time of day you think he's coming through or what your best access is, then you're going to be able to hit him before he gets to that spot where he's pretty bulletproof. Um, the other example would be like um, where Andrew talked about those thermals pulling down into that lake. So how that bowl came and then it necked down. So if you're able to sit below that bowl first thing in the morning or late in the evening, there's no way he can bust you because you got a back wall, you know, protecting you. And if you can shoot up through into that bowl, then I mean, it's, it's lights out. Money set up. Does that get you fired up? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's what, that's what I was saying. You, You pretty much answered what I thought was, and I never thought about it this way, but like, if you know that there's that swirling turbulent air in and around where these deer are going to be coming through and it makes a perfect spot. And actually that would be a great location to put a mock scrape. I feel like, like in that location, like, you know, talking more flatland here, but like in that location where that turbulent wind is at, I feel like that would be a great place to put a mock scrape if, if you're going to be doing that. Um, and then kind of keying in, like, Andrew, that spot where you had a mock scrape, you kept having deer come through, mm. and there's it was always turbulent wind. There's no way to hunt down in there because of the wind. But if you got high enough up on one of those ridges, you may have an opportunity. Well, it makes me think about uh, if, if anybody heard our In the Field series, the first episode we did, we were scouting on my hunting club. There's a very flat part of the hunting club, very similar to stuff that you've mentioned here, actually, where you have a, a swamp, essentially, and then you've got uh, basically a clear cut around it. And um, actually where this particular spot is, there's actually young pines. And it's a really dense pine thicket. Uh, you can't hunt it really. You can't shoot into it. And there's a tree line of big, giant white oaks and red oaks that juts out right in the middle of it. I mean, just a line of them. And then it bulbs out at the end where there's a pond right there. Like a little, how big is that pond? I mean, not very big. 30 yards wide, maybe. 30 yard wide pond that juts out right in the middle of it. And we were talking about the thermals and the wind in that spot and how they're going to, you know, curl around and do all kinds of weird stuff. And we were also talking about why we thought that would probably be a pretty good spot for a mock scrape because you have like a, a feature that's sticking out in the middle of all this really good cover. You put a scrape right there and, uh, the wind is going to blow the scent from that scrape like all directions. It's going to swirl, you know, the wind's coming from this direction. It's going to blow it out there and it's just going to, it's going to really cover a lot of ground where a lot of deer in the area are going to smell that and potentially come to it. And I think of it almost like back when I trapped a lot, when you were setting for coyotes or something, or really any predator, but especially coyotes, or I would look at the wind direction for the next three or four days and set my traps based off of that, where I'm strategically putting this in a spot where I know that the wind is going to blow the scent from this, this set all over the place, where any coyotes in the area are going to be able to smell that and we almost think about it the same way with bucks in that particular spot when it comes to mock scrapes but i can see how it can apply to any of these other locations as well too i'll say another place a lot of places where i find the scrapes is well we, people have talked about this but where the thermals all join that's a big scraping area uh, like a social hub or you know a thermal hub um but i think really to like dumb it down 
to make it a little bit easier. Um, if you're able to scout and you're able to find like concentration of just general deer sign, you know, whether it's a feeding area, whether it's a, a hub of activity, you've got lots of tracks on the ground, maybe you got little rubs, but you're not finding big sign. Maybe the big tracks aren't there. Just go downwind. Just take your milkweed and throw it and see where the wind's going. And also think about thermals. Where's the thermal going at night? If you have an area where there's a lot of concentrated deer activity, you're almost always going to have the dominant bucks in that area keying in on it. Sometimes they cut right through it if that works for them because they're checking ground scent. But a lot of times they're going wherever that scent ends up. So if, if the wind blows it in the same area or, or if it falling, it's falling downhill, uh, that's why a lot of times you have those doe trails up high and you have those buck trails down below them because they're just, they're running in that scent. They want it in their nose. Um, it's also, you know, a little bit safer for them to, to be down on that steeper stuff. Um, but that, that, that would be my suggestion. If you're trying to figure this, that's how I figured it out. Honestly, is you find these areas where, where this, this, um, uh, concentration of deer activity and you want to hunt it. Well, where are you going to hunt it? You got to get downwind. And then all of a sudden you get downwind and you got all this deer activity in front of you. And yet somehow the big deer still ends up downwind to you. How does it happen? It's because he knows to check that spot from downwind or down thermal. You get busted in the evening. He's circling it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's what they naturally do. Yeah. I was thinking, uh, there's a spot and I've talked about it, uh, on a couple different podcasts recently, which is spot I'm, I'm definitely going to focus and try to kill a deer this next uh, this season. But it sets up a little bit different, not necessarily for like nighttime thermals, but it, it, to me it sets up for a lot like mid-morning, early afternoon, midday movement where it's a spot inside of a pine thicket and all the sign, a lot of the big sign you find is just off the – there's a road on top of the ridge and it's just off that road probably less than 80 yards is where a lot of that sign is. But it's at the highest elevation point, and there's does that bed all in and around there. And there's just the amount, and it's not nighttime sign because I've been in there. It's not nighttime sign. It's, it's daytime <laughs> sign. It's thick, nasty covering, uh, trail cameras and everything proving it. But um, it's just interesting how those deer, a lot of that more doe sign is slightly farther down from that elevation point. And I'll say this. I have not quite yet gone to the flip side and gone to the very lowest spot blow all of this on and see if there's more sign down there for more like evenness on as that buck's kind of scent checking before he starts coming up at all. But that is kind of interesting. It's almost like you see like that line of sign potentially laid out, like this big sign in and around where that activity's at. But again, it's just downwind because this area also sets up during the time of the year I'm finding this, we have a lot of days, every now and then you'll have a north wind, but a lot of times it's like a south, southwest, south, southeast. And that's exactly what this sign sets up for. Is again, it's up the ridge. It's you know sets up for rising thermals, sets up for that saying that south wind, and uh, again it works together very well for those deer. But again, now it makes me think, like you said, you start scouting the woods, you find all this sign, all this feed sign, and everything. You set up where you think you're downwind, but you're still getting busted behind you because that buck's swinging farther downwind, and you're getting shot in the foot. So that is something super interesting to think about for now setting up, and especially if you're scouting a spot go past that sign. And what I mean, like go past where that feed sign is, especially if it's like a, a, a feeding area, 
go a lot farther past that 100, 150 yards down, you know, wind of that location or downhill of that location and seeing if you get into some bigger rubs or even potential scrapes in that location where that buck is coming through uh, and scent checking. Yeah, for sure. Um, another thing kind of think about, like, talking about people asking about how it relates to flat ground. Um, like I said, there's nothing really flat. And flat ground to me, it it hunts very similar to hill terrain. It's, it's obviously, it looks a lot different. Um, but with flat ground, it's sort of like hill terrain. Because like hill terrain, pretty much you could take from the, the top third and anything above that is usually not really used very much by the deer. Very rarely. I mean, sometimes you'll get a good spot for a buck to set up up top. But a lot of times they're running like that top third and then down at night. And it's the same thing if you flip it over in flat ground. The lowest, like the very lowest stuff is full of water. It's a pond. So that's kind of a dead area. But they're running that area, the elevation around that water line and then above. Um, and really like, a, like in, in a swamp like a swamp gap, like between two swamps, it hunts almost identical to a, to a, um, a saddle in hill country. Like as far as you got deer cutting over it, but the big bucks are actually cutting it from swamp to swamp perpendicular. Just like a buck that's running a ridge is cutting below that saddle. He's not necessarily running up and over top of ridges a lot. Um, at least from what I've seen. So, I. Uh did you have something because i'm railroad oh okay bring it up no well no you you bring it up i got something else so one thing i wanted you just mentioned like the swamp aspect and even in flatland like on andrew's club they has this swamp on the property it has a couple creeks that run through there and thick nasty hell hole around it i mean to the point i'm like andrew guys out into the swamp where kind of opened up around a lot of like that heavy water and then we start looking back at the tree line and i'm like what is the tree line is a buffer of 40 to 40 maybe 45 yards of just thick nasty hell holes crap all tangled it i mean you're literally trying to pull stuff out of the way to try you're, to get you're through. like crawling through holes in the cover and i'm <laughs> like well this is how we're gonna get bit in the face by a cotton mouth as we're trying to mm-hmm. lean down underneath this crap to get through it but uh <laughs> and then it comes up to bigger stand of timber and all that kind of stuff but in this flat land and in this swamp there is an old railroad bed that's raised up 15 feet tall that cuts right through the middle of the swamp I an mean, old tram road oh dude listen and uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's dude, it's it's um it's interesting because we we hit that and it's just crazy because you're coming out of this thick swamp and all of a sudden you see this huge freaking mound of dirt which is of course the the railroad bed. Yeah, very abrupt, very abrupt. And you get up on there and also up on the railroad bed, so there's bigger trees because this is a very 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 old railroad bed, like Civil War. Yeah, Civil War era. Um, and there's a bunch of big trees up on top of that where like down low the big trees can't really live because it's too wet at least the trees that are in this area, the natives of this area. Mm-hmm. So it's more shrubby. And we get up there, and there's rubs running the top and the sides of that railroad bed. And then you can see trails that are cutting across it where they're coming from one side of the swamp, over the top, back down the other side into the swamp. Mm-hmm. If you found something like that, where you just had like this abrupt terrain feature right in the middle that clearly they're using... Very defined focal point, is what I like to call it. What would be your take on finding something like that for, like, huntability or just for overall knowledge of potentially how the deer are going to be using that area? Um, that's tough for me to say without seeing it. I have hunted some some of those old uh, road railroad beds in swamps, and it's kind of funny because when you first find it, you think that those bucks would run it, run along it, to, and I've never, ever, ever seen that. I don't know why. 
they seem to always cut across it. Um, now that could just be the area that I'm hunting, like as far as how they're going from one to the next, but that's what I've seen them do a lot. Um, now I don't, yeah, I, I don't know why, because <laughs> you think it would be a perfect roadway for them to run the length of that swamp, but I just haven't seen them, seen them do that. Though I also haven't run cameras there, so you know that's something that could be happening. Um, how I would hunt it, I mean, I would just, I would look for sign. I'm not a big sign hunter, but when it comes to flat ground and uh, swamps, sign does become important because you can't read it. You can read it pretty well, but it's not like hill country uh, as far as a lot of times in hill country, those deer, it's like, you might as well be reading a roadmap, you know, as far as how they travel. Um, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah, well, it's one of those things that, like, it's. I was telling Andrew, like, I don't know exactly, like, the application for hunting itself. And because you can tell there's a lot of trails that are crossing it. Like, they're not necessarily running down, but you, you can see rubs that are going down the top of the, the railroad path. And you're like, okay, is he only hopping up here for a little bit, running down 40 yards, and then hopping back off the other side? Or is he, you know, walking for more of a distance? Um, it, it did, I will say, it did kind of seem like those rubs were more concentrated around those creek crossing or around the where they were crossing the top where they were just go right up and over the thing there'd be rubs either right on it or you know 10 to 15 yards off of it and then you'd walk a while and there wouldn't really be any rubs and you'd find another crossing and then there's some rubs not very many not very big rubs that's, either that's exactly how the one was that i that i hunted it was like all the concentration of the sign was just in certain areas it wasn't yeah yeah it was very similar i think i might just trim a trail and sit right on top of that joker where i can see down far enough to those crossings and sit it, with a rifle it's like being in a tree stand yeah. Yeah. You're up on it yeah it is you can see way out in the swamp i mean it's very abrupt it's really cool yeah it's it's a neat That's spot really cool. uh, uh oh where are you trying to go because you're trying to do something so uh i got i can't we're sitting in an hour so we're getting close to wrapping it up but i can't let you get yeah. out of here without asking about again just something for my club uh, something that i have never dealt with but it, it I feel a very unique situation is uh, on on part of this club. We're, we're talking about the swamp, and the whole area around the swamp is 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 very flat, especially for this area. Um, just I don't know how big of an area it is, but it's a it's a sizable area. We said I think the swamp's maybe like thirty acres. What's well, a much bigger area than thirty acres? It's flat, and you kind of go south a little bit, and then there's a very abrupt ridge system where you go from flat, and then bam, it raises up. And you got a, a pretty tall ridge system just kind of overshadowing this big flat area. That transition from flat swamp to more dry, arid ridge, is that something you've ever had experience with or, or know anything about how they might use that topography edge? Not necessarily a habitat edge, but more of a, where the topography changes pretty abruptly. Yeah, that can be a tough situation. Um, I run into that hunting out of state where you have nice swamp down in the bottom and then you have nice hillsides. Um, what I tend to find out of state a lot of times um, is those deer like to be in the hills. Um, what I find in state, I don't know if it's a pressure thing, but a lot of our deer are in the bottoms. Uh, so did you get to scout the hillsides too, or, or is that part of your club or what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's a pretty big club, and all that entire ridge system is part of the club. Uh, so far, we've only scouted the swamp, but I'm going to move to the hill soon. Are those hills, are they thick or are they open woods? Uh, they're mostly thick, so it's mostly cutovers. you got a variety, so you'll have 
there's no fresh cut over, but there's, you know, three or four year old pines that are very thick underneath still. And then you've got a little bit of stuff that is a little bit older pines that are more open underneath where they've started shedding everything out. And then you've got a couple select cuts where you've got more mature pines that they thinned one or two years ago that are nice and thick underneath, uh, you know, where you got mature trees, but also a really, really nice understory. Um, the things that I, that are just coming to my mind, you know, without being able to see it would be how the general access is around that area. And if there's a good spot that sets up where the buck could monitor that access, um, if there are guys hunting in the general vicinity, that's, that's usually what I, especially on a place like a club where guys seem to be very, 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 very patternable. It's like the same guys are hunting it the same way. It's not like public land where all of a sudden one year you got somebody diving in, doing crazy stuff. And then next year that guy's not there. It's somebody sitting in a ladder. It's like the guys in clubs, man, it's like, they're like clockwork. And if I was on a club, that's what I would be keying in on is those bucks keeping tabs on the hunters, because that, that to me would be, um, priority number one and probably the easiest the easiest way to find the deer mm-hmm. absolutely yes so, yeah, sorry i don't have, i don't have anything specific for that scenario i can tell you it is a little bit tough when you have hills and swamp because now the deer have more options so now you're like are they in the hills or are they in the swamp it, you should be able to figure it out with some scouting um and then just try to find that area that is the most bulletproof where he has the most ability to uh, monitor the access and i guarantee you he's he's probably using that area <laughs> yeah yeah and, and we've scouted one area similar to what you're just talking about where they can monitor access they're kind of flying under the radar a little bit and man sure enough it it, it looks great in there a lot of a lot of buck yeah. sign a lot of deer sign in general a lot of buck uh uh big tracks in there so um the good thing i don't know if you've heard but like the good thing about this club is it's got a big old paper map and you pin out with thumbtacks, and so I can see yeah. exactly which areas get hammered. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. I, yeah, that's gonna be fun. Yeah, it's a it's a new for experience sure. for me for sure. I'm 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 excited. I'm, I I might have to take your spot when they kick you out next year because you kill too many big deer. <laughs> hey, man, I can I can bring three guests. I know Jacob's one oh, of my guests geez. this year. So come on up to Alabama. <laughs> I know you got like 18 other trips planned. <laughs> oh man, yeah. No, that sounds fun, though. So another thing, Doug, real quick, that uh, I just want to touch on is when it comes to you and your hunting style, just from everything we've talked about, and Andrew, you need to find on your phone the last two episodes we've had them on so we can play it in this episode. So by the way, guys, if you've been listening to this episode, I know we're doing this a little late in the episode, but uh, make sure you're subscribed. Check out some of the other episodes we get coming out this summer. So we appreciate y'all's feedback and uh, appreciate y'all listening to the show. But, Doug, one thing about you that I've kind of come to realize – and maybe, tell me if I'm wrong here, but you're not like a huge food source hunter, as in you're sitting right over the top of the food. It's more of those transition areas, where 90% of the guys I know that hunt in flatlands are like very specifically hunting food sources. Like that is like the thing that I hear all the time. And if you go back and listen to any of the episodes we've done with guys in flatland, whether it's in big river bottoms, um, big pines, whatever, they're hunting in and around that destination food source, where there's an oak flat, uh, persimmon trees, uh, a small little cutover where you just get more browse, whatever. You're not necessarily like that, if if I'm saying that correctly. Would you say so? 
Yeah, no, I, uh, <laughs> I, I barely know the difference in types of tree. Andrew would be just so disappointed. In me. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I'm not a big food source guy. I have in the last few years been making a point to learn more um, because it's just another area. I mean, the more you know, the better decisions you can make. But it also becomes a chicken and egg thing where the food matters, but where the food is, the deer are going to be and where the deer are, they're going to be leaving sign and they're going to be using the terrain in a certain way. So once you figure out where the deer are and how the wind flows through there and how you're going to hunt it, it really doesn't matter what they're feeding on. It's just as long as you can find the deer when they're there. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's where I was kind of getting at with this is like, I feel like so many people hear a lot of these guys that we interview on flatlands and they're like, they're hammering home feed trees in those destination food sources. And you don't have to do that to be successful. Some, some, some places, well, I, some guys yeah. are very successful doing it, but like, it, as long as you're, I mean, you can, maybe we can hash this out a little bit, but like, there's other ways yeah. to be successful other than relying solely on finding that one food source that's they're keying in on. Yeah, no, I, I know guys personally, um, that are food centric. I mean that they know all their oaks, they know when they're going to drop. They kill a lot of nice bucks. Like they know what they're doing. Like I said, it's a chicken and egg thing to where we're kind of doing the same thing. But I'm just not focused on the food. I'm focused on the aspect of I'm going to find the deer. Yeah, the deer are, are down here. And also, like, if you're hunting big woods, mountains, the deer are going to be in the food if they can be safely. That's where they're going to be. So it doesn't really matter if you're looking for the food or for the deer. Now, it can help you. I'll say if you're able to look at a map and locate, I mean, absolutely, down in Florida, I can look at a map and I know exactly what an oak tree looks like. And I'm going to check it for acorns. So if you're hunting an area in big woods and you can locate um, certain, you know, elevations or whatever, where certain types of oaks, if you know, you have all that knowledge, that's going to be a quick way for you to be able to get into deer. Um, so, yeah, I'm not at all discrediting. Uh, obviously, obviously that food store stuff and the feed trees is money. I mean, it, it works very well. Um, I'm just going about it a different way. Uh, but the other thing, too, is a lot of these places down here, the food is scattered pretty darn well. Um, and that's the other thing that I kind of wanted to say is I think a lot of times people get a little too caught up on certain types of features or certain types of methods, whether it's a feed tree, whether it's they want to hunt bedding points or they want to hunt funnels or saddles or, or whatever. You need to really understand the context of the area and how that feature plays in. Because there's going to be a lot of, like I said, a lot of dead features. There's going to be a lot of funnels that aren't going to produce. There's going to be a lot of bedding points that don't produce. There's going to be a lot of oak trees where the acorns are going to sit there and rot because they're never going to get eaten. Um, but if you know how the deer relate to the terrain, and if that food is also in the right terrain, that's where they're going to be feeding. Um, I think I remember, Andrew, you talking about walking a place last season, and there was acorns everywhere and you said and it seemed like there was no feed sign and all of a sudden you got to like a big flat point or something like that and it was just chowed down and like you could tell there was really heavy feed sign and what that is likely that big flat point it's either where those deer were bedding summertime before anybody kicked them out of there or it's where they're coming up at night and laying down to feed because that point is a safe place for them to lay so why are they going to go off and feed anywhere on the hillside when they have that perfect food source in the exact uh, sort of feature that they feel comfortable in. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes perfect sense. 
Yeah, no, and, and yeah. I guess that's that is a huge factor as well when you're thinking about like, you know, there may be food sign feed sign there, and like this nighttime sign, yeah, maybe you can cut the distance, but if you can really find the stuff they're most comfortable in and around, that just puts you that much closer to potentially where you're going to be able to find those deer. Uh, but I just wanted to make that statement that again, you know, your style of hunting is just different from a lot of guys's. You know, when you're talking about that terrain habitat or that you know more flat land terrain is you're not just dead set on food sources. Again, more finding the sign, hunting the areas that these deer are traveling through to maybe get to that destination food source, but it's not primary on your, on your mindset. Uh, so I just want to mention that out there that, again, there are different ways to skin a cat, and uh, there's different ways to be successful, and that's kind of the fun part about this podcast is we can kind of highlight these different ways and, and functionalities. Uh, but real quick, just getting back on the topic of uh, we mentioned earlier, you know, about buck behavior. You know, give us your last kind of overall take about, again, you know, this, this, what you see buck behavior wise, the similarities. So people understand no matter where you're at, bucks are going to be doing the same, especially when it comes to the rut and how they're going to be using that habitat. It's just about figuring out, you know, where you're at and, you know, what makes the most sense for them for traveling. Yeah. I mean, to me, what I focus on is the wind and the thermals, um, to the, you know, to the highest degree, because to me, we all know that bucks live and die by their nose, that they see the world through their nose. So if you just imagine they want to see as much as they can as safely and as efficiently as possible. Um, and that, that to me is once you figure out those land features and, um, how they can concentrate scent and then how the bucks like to travel from one to the next, um, it's it's paid off and i keep seeing it year after year you know and and like you said there's more than one way to skin a cat so there it's it's definitely uh lots of other ways to go about it but um i enjoy it you know and the other thing about the food sources is those bucks are traveling multiple food sources like we talked about earlier so you don't have to be on a food source you know you can be between certain ones Um, so that's part of the reason why i don't always focus on food because if i'm looking at the big picture how is a buck traveling he's probably running a two or three mile loop, you know, he's, he's hitting six, eight different food sources. So to me, it doesn't matter if this oak tree dropping or that oak tree dropping because the macro movement of how I see him moving year after year, they're going to be running pretty much the same pattern. Does that make sense? Of course. Absolutely, man. This again, staying out of the weeds a little bit and getting more into, uh, you said macro movement. I really like that phrase. Like not focusing on the on the micro of what's going on specifically right there, but more macro. Why would something be coming through that general area, and then how do you you know capitalize on that movement? Yeah, and that goes into like um, I know you've you've talked to other guys, especially in like low density, uh, maybe flat ground, maybe big woods. I can't remember, but they talk about. I think some people, and they agree, they undersit a good spot. They don't sit there enough days in a row for that buck to come through because he's on that big circuit and you know like we talked about low density you're not going to have a shooter come by every day if you're hunting real low density stuff um but if you're in the right spot if you're confident then if you can sit that spot one two three full days in a row he's probably going to come through there perfect awesome love it andrew you got anything else that's all i got what's the other episodes we got got oh 261 and 265 that's your homework. I listen to those. Yep. First ones we done with old Doug. So yeah, two sixty one, two sixty five. Awesome. Well, uh, Doug, you got anything else for us before we kind of wrap it up here? 
No, nah, man, I'm I'm good to go. <laughs> man, okay. Well, go. Real quick, uh, how soon are you going to be in a tree stand or out in? Oh, I'm I'm trying to go get bit up by mosquitoes in about three weeks. Here, I think is when it opens. Which <laughs> <laughs> will be July. I don't know when this episode is going to come out. They're already, uh, yeah, they're already chasing. From what I hear, I haven't been able to get out there and scout or anything. But yeah, recording it's, this it's on going off already. Recording this on July twelfth. Yeah. Already chasing. <laughs> Gotta love it. Awesome. Well, Doug, thanks again for coming on the podcast, guys. Again, if you've enjoyed this podcast, share it with a friend or buddy. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Also, make sure you check out Patreon, uh, where we have our In the Field podcast episode series. Or you can also subscribe on Apple um, paid subscriptions, a dollar ninety nine a month or twenty dollars a year, I believe. Yep, that's right. And you get not only uh, all of our podcasts ad free, but you also get. Uh, the In the Field podcast bonus episodes as well. So appreciate everybody's support. Doug, appreciate you coming on here. And guys, we'll check back with you guys on the next episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about uh, which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.